Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one. Giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org slash donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org slash donate. Thank you for your support, and thanks for listening. Welcome to this podcast of Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton, founder of Climate One. Climate One brings together thought leaders from around the world to advance solutions to global warming. The Commonwealth Club is a nonprofit, nonpartisan forum open to the public. Join us online at commonwealthclub.org. Welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm Greg Dalton, Vice President of the Club and founder of Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. Climate One gets together leaders from business, government, and civil society to discuss solutions to global warming and sustainable energy. Today, we're honored to have with us four guests to discuss international transportation. Uh, Kate Bloomberg is Research Director at the International Council for Clean Transportation. Corny Huizinga, help me there, Corny. Hausenga, thank you, is vice chair of the Clean Air Initiative Asia Center. Michael O'Hare is a professor at the Goldman School of Public Policy at UC Berkeley. And Lee Shipper is a project scientist at UC Berkeley. Uh, Lee, let's start with you. Uh, the economy is out on everybody's mind these days, and the economic global economic uh, recession. How is that affecting both uh, transportation policy and also transportation trends? two very twisted ways. On the one hand, there's a slowdown in transport activity all around, uh, slowdown in buying of cars. On the other hand, we have an enorm- enormous opportunity so that t- to change the rules of transport, fuel, and CO2 so that when the economy comes roaring back, we produce more efficient infrastructure, use it more efficiently. Unfortunately for the U.S., SUVs are coming back as a share of the depressed numbers of cars sold because energy is as cheap as it was in the early part of this millennium. And, and without changing that relationship, we're probably going to lose yet another opportunity. So we're using less, but we're, we're keeping our, our same old uh, habits and, and, and buying patterns haven't changed very much. Yeah, we're using less because we're doing less because we're less rich. Interestingly enough, in the, in the mid-1980s, when the economy finally came roaring back after the, the, the recession. In 1984, U.S. manufacturing industries had the greatest single year of energy saving in the industry. And that's because we were living, still living under very high oil prices. Uh, and that's kind of a, a, a rule that, that you see everywhere in economies. When there's fast growth and a lot of replacement of capital stock, a lot of getting rid of the old junk, uh, you have a big savings in energy. The fear I have is that we will come roaring back with the false sense of cheap energy and cheap transportation, throw away a lot of money on the wrong things, and then when the next big oil crunch comes, we're in trouble again. Michael Hare, do you agree we're not really learning our lessons in this downturn or taking the opportunity that the downturn might present? Well, well, we desperately look for signs of... uh for signs of hope, and there probably are some, but there's, um, I think Lee is right there, a lot of things are going in the wrong direction. There's much too much discussion. We want to talk about cars. There's much too much discussion about um, about uh, our economic stimulus being uh, building lane miles to finally deal with the highway congestion so that we can all really drive our cars to work fast. Um, and um, that would really, that would be a big pity because we can't, in fact, lane mile out of, lane mile ourselves out of any of the problems cars create and not nearly enough discussion about transit. And there's also fairly widespread misconception about um, how things like transit, that is, alternatives to cars, should be provided, uh, especially in pricing, uh, where it's, it's much too expensive. And I can make that argument not just on uh, some moral principle, but uh, on fairly technical economic grounds. 
The right, the right fare for uh, a trip on the BART when it's not full is about a nickel, just to keep out joyriders. Uh, it's not ideological. Uh, it's technical, because you're not using up any resources to get on a car that has seats. Corny, you're based in Shanghai. What, what are you seeing there in terms of how the economic uh, recession is affecting uh, both transportation patterns among individuals and uh, policy there in China? I think that things are happening a little bit slower in China, but at the same time, the crisis is hitting there as well, but the crisis is hitting in a different manner. Uh, the Chinese government has just also decided uh, that they would like to support their vehicle industry, and the aim there is to make certain that there's still a growth of 12% per year over the next three years. India is also looking at a bailout. We see the same discussions, however, in Asia as that we see here in the U.S., like China Daily, one of the most influential newspapers in China, just came out with an opinion piece in which they say that assistance to the vehicle industry should be tied in to conditions with respect to fuel economy, and at the same time, there was a separate headline which says this should not be at the expense of public transport. Interesting. Kate, you do, Kate Bloomberg, you do a lot of work with international regulators. Is the recession strengthening their hand, or is it, how's it changing the relationship between the industry, which is in, in great dire straits, uh, at least the, the established players are in great dire straits, how's that affecting the relationship between the regulators and the industry? I think that's still yet to be seen, really, um, that we we don't know. I think that you see a little bit of movement in each direction. So in China, they just reduced uh, gas and diesel prices, um, which, uh, of course, we do every time because we have a market mechanism. So gas prices fall when oil prices fall. Um, but at the same time, in a lot of countries, when the oil prices went up, the, the, the gas prices did not go up. They did not follow. So there were subsidies in place. And now that, that the prices are falling and there's this recession as a, as a problem as a, out there, this financial crisis, they are, the regulators are bringing down the prices in a lot of these controlled uh, areas. I think that for the auto companies, it's really too soon to say. There's only so much that that Congress can insist or demand from, from the auto companies. Whether or not they survive, we, we won't know yet. And so I think that, that um, it's, it's going to be interesting. And, and the people who regulate fuel economy are very different people who are bailing out the companies in the U.S. And so how, how those two things get together is going to be interesting. I think it's also going to be interesting under this new administration, at least in the U.S., to, in the past, fuel economy has always been regulated um, by Department of Transportation, NHTSA, the National Highway Safety, Transportation Safety Administration. Um, the EPA is really arguing for a role in that now uh, with greenhouse gas regulation. And so how are they going to share that role with greenhouse gas regulation and fuel economy, both in the light-duty passenger cars and also in heavy-duty vehicles, is going to be something that I think we'll have to wait a little bit to see. Um, But the recession, I think, is it goes both ways, as everybody's been saying. There's there's some stimulus that's going to public transportation or, or trains in China. They're saying $90 billion for rail uh, sub, you know, transport, um, but then they're probably also uh, supporting – they are also supporting the, the auto industry. So – it kind of goes both directions. Well, let's drill into that a little bit in terms of China. Both, you know, uh, I lived in China in the 80s and know that, you know, they often one step forward or two steps forward, one step backwards, that, that sort of thing. Corny, tell us a little more about their stimulus bill in terms of this trade-off Kate just mentioned in terms of investing in some public or clean transportation, but at the same time propping up uh, fossil fuel industries. First of all, like, we need to understand that in China, the, the transport infrastructure is still being created. It's not like here in the U.S. that that you want to replace one mode by the other mode. In China, for example, over the next 30 years, 300 million people will be moving to the cities, which is equal to almost the population of the U.S., (laughs) which gives the Chinese government a unique chance to create a transit-oriented development structure so that you build the transport and then you build the cities around the transport. And are are they doing that? Are there examples of that? 
Yeah, I think that that's clear. For example, like I live in Shanghai, and there's a lot of urban uh, renewal taking place where I live and where there's a densification taking place, where uh, small houses are being replaced by, by high-rises. But at the same time, the, the, the subway was also extended. So I live next to the subway, so there's a very clear direct relationship. And this is something, for example, that you see much less in India. India has a completely different approach to urban development. India will also have 200 million people moving to cities. But the traditional cities are not being touched. What they are doing is they're building new towns at, at, uh, at the edge of the city. So it creates a much more complicated transport uh, solution. So you prefer the, the Chinese model. Lee Shipper, um, how do you see that? Well, one of the places I worked a lot a few years ago was Xi'an, China, which is the place where the uh, terracotta warriors are buried outside of the town. Xi'an is surrounded by a huge old old wall that's four kilometers by four kilometers. And the joke is, if you want to drive in from the airport to the north end, you've got to wait till somebody drives out at the south gate. Uh, they're going to build on one axis... Uh, a bus rapid transit system, the kind of thing that's foreseen for the Geary Street Corridor in San Francisco, for example. And on the other axis, they're going to build a metro, and they've got loans and World Bank and different countries helping them. Uh, Yet it hasn't occurred to them with a, a city that has specific gates where you go in and out you have a perfect case for congestion pricing because you really can't move once you get inside the walls. Which congestion pricing is where different price, there's a gate or a toll depending you, on yeah. time of day? And it's specifically what we call cordon style, like Singapore. You pay when you go in, and it's, it's a real, it's, it's, to me, it's a no-brainer. What is happening in the meantime, we've got a, a, you can see, if you look at pictures of the same stretch of street, from a time when buses and a few taxis went in the middle of these main axes and people walked or cycled on the sides, now taxis and buses are where the people used to walk, and the main street is full of cars, and cars have got the French syndrome where they're parking on the sidewalks. And so Xi'an has to invest in the same kind of little, little uh, sort of picket fences that the Parisians put up to keep cars from parking in the sidewalks. Now, this is all happening at the same level of car ownership that San Francisco had in the 1920s. But it's happening so rapidly that the authorities, none of whom were, were, were trained at a time when there were cars to worry about, have to sort of live through a hundred years of experience. The good news is that anybody in China or India can look back and say, hmm, we're where the Americans were in the early 1920s. We can, we can try to have their style of city and their style of transport system, but oops, we haven't got the room. We haven't got the energy. We haven't, got, uh, we haven't really got the, the time to make that happen. Or we can do much stronger things to retard the, way in, uh, the, the rate of increase in the use of, of private cars and build cities that don't need private cars. That's a, I, I can't tell the Chinese they must do that, but I've spent the last 10 years showing the Chinese, the Indians, the Vietnamese, and the Mexicans, where I've done most of my work, what the choices are and what the consequences are likely to be. And as I think Corny will agree, will agree we're beginning to get more people, in, in, at least in Asia, beginning to say, hmm, Maybe you're right. And, and Kate and I have had the same experience working in Mexico City. And the new mayor of Mexico City uh, has a totally different view on how his city and its land uses should evolve compared to previous mayors. And, and as Mike O'Hare said, the, the Mexican approach was to build lane miles, to build these huge axes. Kind of imagine Alamany Boulevard, or one of the widest boulevards in the Bay Area, that simply cuts across, cuts a swath, they cut down houses. This will solve the transport problem. Or, or above, there's that new Second elevated floors. highway. <laughs> yeah, or, or, or the, 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 what's called the segundo piso, the, the, the double deck thing, the thing that San Francisco took down, Mexico put up in part. Mm-hmm. And they, all, they thought, well, that'll solve our problem. It doesn't. So where's the best example of sort of enlightened transportation uh, planning and implementation that, that you see in the developing world? Because for decades, people have seen these problems, and they still copy the American model. Corny. I think that a very nice example is Seoul, where the, the, the new mayor who is now the president of, uh, of South Korea and who before was the chief executive of Hyundai, one of the car companies, he took out 7.4 kilometers of elevated highway in the center of the city and put in a river. And uh, why did he do that? He, would, he wanted to give a, a signal that 
urban uh, structures in Seoul needed to be uh, revisited. And this, this replacement of, the, of, of this elevated highway was a symbol. At the same time, they introduced a bus rapid transit system. They restructured the whole bus system. So they are completely changing the orientation of, of urban transport in, 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 in the city. And this was well after the Olympics and the building boom that, that for the 88 Olympics? Mm-hmm. Oh, definitely. Okay. This, this happened something like uh, eight years ago. Michael O'Hare? Well, another couple of examples that people always point to are Singapore and uh, Curitiba in Brazil. Mm-hmm. Uh, Singapore is kind of public policy uh, analyst heaven because they, they love public policy analysis, and then they do what it says. Uh, in Singapore, for example, I, I guess we should... Let's recognize that when we're talking about transportation in this context, we're facing a collision of legitimate values. Um, it's not the case that... Um, we are, it is possible to solve many problems at the same time by being smart. But, uh, for example, in Singapore, if you want to buy a car, you also have to buy in an annual auction the license plate to go in your car. And the last time I looked, which was a few years ago, they, that license plate cost about as much as a medium-sized Toyota, so it doubles the price of the car. So here, you have a city here where only rich people uh, can afford to have a car, whereas in Bangkok, just to choose another example, anybody who has the price of a car can have a car. Come back to Singapore, everybody who has a car can actually drive it because they've managed, they've, they've controlled the number of cars to fit the streets and they've provided all kinds of public transport alternatives. In Bangkok, nobody who has a car can drive it because you can't drive in Bangkok. It's, it's total constant good luck. Now, which of these is better? Well, Singapore often comes up, and it's, it's not a real transferable model because it's a small nation state with a sort of a benevolent, uh, it's quasi-democracy, right? So these... these uh, Issues, you know, let's talk about Bangkok a little more because that's a big Asian metropolis. That there's more cities like Bangkok than there are uh, nation states or cities like Singapore. And is there something that can be learned from from Bangkok's, you know, successes or or challenges? I don't know when Mike was for the last time in Bangkok, but I think that also in Bangkok uh, things are changing. That uh, they have put up. A combination of solutions. Not all of them are equally attractive to us, but, but what they have done is they have built a number of elevated highways uh, with tolling. At the same time, they have built uh, sky trains, uh, which are taking up a lot of the, uh, of, of, of the traffic. And what you see, for example, coming back to the transit-oriented development, is that you see a densification, for example, along Sukhumvit, one of the main roads, and people are advertising with, with new construction, 100 meters from, from the SkyTrain. Mm-hmm. So the problem that they still have in Bangkok is with the, with the land use planning, like where are we going to expand the city? Like if you fly into Bangkok, you see in the middle of the rice paddies, you see a whole new development with one small road huh, leading to the city, and it's clear that public transport is not going to be the answer for this small isolated uh, new settlement in, in, in the rice paddies. Huh? At the same time, they still have a large problem with their buses, huh? The buses are still antiquated, operated by the government, not being replaced by new buses, no priority schemes for the buses. So, and parking, obviously, is something which is one of the big, the big problems in, in Bangkok. But still, in Bangkok, the glass is also slowly filling up. And I don't think that the glass is emptying. In, in the United States, land use is a very localized function of government, uh, yet in some of these Asian countries, uh, there's more centralization of, of policy and, and, and power. Are, 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 is there opportunity in some of the, these countries where they can make land use decisions and policies at a national level that will be more transit friendly? I think in Asia, we have 2,500 cities with more than 100,000 people. We have very weak institutions at the national level. So it's clear that the answer is not at the national level. I think that what the national level can do is set a paradigm. They can come up with a, with a direction. They say, this is what we would like to see. Mm-hmm. But, but the solutions and the capacities to, to make the plans need to be at the local level. In China, for example, we currently have 144 cities with more than, a, with more than 1 million persons. So it's... It's not going to be the case that, that the national level will be able to really guide and influence the planning at, at, at the local level. We're discussing international transportation policy at the Commonwealth Club of California. Uh, Kate Bloomberg? I was just going to say that in China, there, there was a, um, a 
a large trend of taking out infrastructure for bicycles, where we all think of, of China as the bicycle heaven. And when I went to Beijing about 20 years ago, that was all you saw was yeah. bicycles. When you go to Beijing now, all you see is, is uh, highways. Basically, there's, you know, we think of a ring road as one road that goes around the city. In Beijing, there are six ring roads. So it's just ring after ring after ring and and it's um and but still there's a much higher mode share for bicycles mm-hmm. in Beijing than there are in US cities um and so there was a trend where bicycle bicycle uses were uh bicycles were being banned or being taken not allowed on certain roads and in recent times the the national government has said we need to reverse this the bicycles are are something that are important to China and and we need to to make sure that that's a part of our planning process of course as as corny said they don't have the power to you know make those plans in individual cities but they do have some power to set some direction so Kate Bloomberg is research director at the International Council for Clean Transportation uh, here in, in San Francisco uh, Lee Shipper there's speak? another point to add on to what Kate said at Berkeley we just finished a study of how Canada Sweden and the United Kingdom do their transport financing in Sweden and the UK, roughly half of the money is spent by the county or the metropolitan region. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the US, it's, it's actually 80% is state or local and 20% federal. Uh, one of the points that, that Corny has been making in, in, in his, his work is that most of the cities in Asia just don't have any money. In other words, the authority to do things is local, but the money is national. And even when a city works at, with the World Bank, there are political problems because if, for example, one city I worked in, Porto Alegre, Brazil, has been of, a, of the more conservative party, which means that when the World Bank says, we have a, we have a deal for you, the, 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 the more liberal party that runs the national government, Brazilia, says, oh, no, you don't. So there are always these conflicts unless somehow the local and national governments are aligned. That, that's a problem in the U.S. too. You see different levels of, of, of transit, of land use planning for, for places of roughly the same size. If you compare, say, uh, the Portland metro region or the Seattle metro region or our region with, with Dallas or Houston, you see enormous differences because of political ideology. Kate? And just uh, on the funding issue, I think that that's been a problem. Uh, the international agency, lending agencies like the World Bank have often sort of tended to um, favor sort of big construction projects. Things like bus rapid transit have had a harder time getting funding than a metro rail. So even though the metro, the, 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 the train system is 10 to 100 times more expensive than a bus rapid transit system the, and doesn't necessarily isn't necessarily more efficient. Um, it's it's got an easier time getting funding. It also can have a lot more support on the ground, partly because of some of the things that Corny mentioned that the buses are antiquated, and so people think, oh, buses, buses are polluting. Buses are are not reliable. Buses do not. I don't know where they go. And and a bus rapid transit system should solve that. Although even in Bogota, where they've got one of the the best bus rapid transit examples in in the world, they still have buses that are spewing big clouds of black smoke. A very easy problem to solve, but the, the what the people see is a is a polluting bus, and what they then want is a clean metro. So it, it's it's I think you you do have to think of these as as whole systems, and and also think while we're while we're cleaning up the bus system, we also need to clean up the buses. So. Corny Huzenga from the Clean Air Initiative. To come back to what Lee and what Kate are saying, like about the financing and the, and the dirty buses in, in the BRTs. Last week, the Indian government took a new decision in which they said that in the future, we will not only finance the infrastructure for a bus rapid transit at the, at the city level, but we will also fund 50% of the, of the buses. Huh? Mm-hmm. But we will only do this on a number of conditions. We want to see institutional reforms, we want to see strengthening of the transport institutions, and we want to have a say in what kind of buses are going to be deployed. So, <clears throat> so there what we see in India now is, is a model which is coming up in which we have a national urban transport policy which sets the directions. 
We have the Diabol Nero Urban Renewal Mission, which provides a 6.5 billion financing facility, and we now have implementation guidelines which, which link the selection of technology to institutional reforms to make the whole system more sustainable. And I think that this is a direction which we would like to see in more countries uh, in the developing world. Uh -huh. The dilemma for the United States is, uh, and, and I don't mean to, to cast ill on the various federal funding mechanisms we have, but we have this acronym OPM, Other People's Money. <laughs> Everybody's really happy for a multi-billion dollar transit system, usually rail-based, as long as somebody else pays. Uh, I lived for Washington, in Washington, D.C. for six years and followed the debate over the incredibly expensive, and by expensive I'm talking about $1,000 an inch for a metro extension from where the metro ends in Vienna, Virginia to Dulles Airport. And the answer is, why does it end in Vienna, Virginia? And the answer is, well, that because it was cheaper to put it along the freeway. And you get out of the, the Vienna, and your first question is, where's Vienna? And the answer is, it's a mile north of the station. Uh, my <laughs> point is that we, we kind of, I won't say we made that mistake in, in, in the Bay Area, but if you look at my, my North Berkeley BART station, we've forbidden any development around it. It's a, big, it's a huge parking lot with rails underneath. It seems to me if... So if, this is an eco-friendly Berkeley, which is not doing... Well, downtown Berkeley is redeveloping, the, 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 is doing a lot of things. But somehow we can't seem to build anything in North Berkeley. Uh, Berkeley, that, Berkeley is friendly to many things, not all of which match. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the point is that, that it seems to me that what, in an ideal situation, the, the regions would have more control of their own money, but also... They wouldn't be afraid of taxing themselves. For example, I have no objections to paying a higher gasoline tax for BART because when I have to drive, I benefit. Instead, I pay a slightly higher uh, property tax for BART or sales tax for BART. But why not a gasoline tax? Why not those who most closely benefit from transit, the ones who are left in their cars paying? It's the same with congestion pricing. Those who do pay more save a, a greater value in the time. Those who choose not to pay get better transit service. But somehow the U.S. is unable, uh, as a wealthy country, is unable to match sort of the, the, the user pays principle. In the developing world, there clearly is a shortage of money. And yet when you see the double-decker that was proposed and partly built for the Ring Road in Mexico City, you say, hmm, there's not a shortage of money for expensive metros. There's not a shortage of money for expensive roads. There's only a shortage of money to get new, clean buses for Bangkok. So I don't know if... if I, we, I don't think we know what the real model is for making transport work. It, it, to me, it's less than a question of money and more a question of understanding in the realm of, of public policy, which is Michael Hare's realm. Why does policy always gravitate towards things which in the developing world basically support the 10% or 20% that own cars and leave everybody else behind. Well, Michael O'Hare, Lee, Lee mentioned the, the dirty little tax word, and there have been some uh, things coming out of the U.S. Congress recently uh, suggesting that there ought to be a, a national gasoline tax to fund infrastructure. Other people like uh, a gasoline tax because of uh, reduced usage and it would have carbon benefits. Um, do you see either states, California recently passed, uh, but the governor vetoed an 18 cent a gallon tax on, on gasoline. Uh, do you see gasoline tax changing in, in, this, uh, in this environment? Yes. Well, our, our governor um, also supports many things that don't always match. Uh, and uh, some of the pieces of that are his, uh, are his environmental policies, which are the strange combination of uh, really admirable and, and um, not so much. Uh, <laughs> which, which ones are not so much? Well, uh, transit was cut, and the last, we're desperately trying to get control of our state budget. There were big cuts to transit funding. Uh, that's incomprehensible in the current world that it would take a penny out rather than putting lots more in. So let's, let's, I just want to clarify a couple of ideas that are easy to mix up. Um, when, we, when we say that a, that a local government doesn't have money to do something, sometimes it's the case that sometimes that's because it's populated by people who are poor and the society itself doesn't have the wealth to do something. And that's an appropriate reason for transfers either from richer countries or from a central government that, that taxes other regions that have it. But in the case of California, our state government has no money, uh, has negative money, 
But that doesn't mean that the state of California doesn't have money. That merely means that the state of California, partly because we've nailed our feet to the floor politically in making these decisions, hasn't chosen to transfer the right amount of its wealth and spending into the public sector. And um, as long as I'm on this path, uh, um, it's really important to understand that we're not going to get out of this by one clean administrative trick. You know, if we, if we had a gas tax and it was the right gas tax, then everything would be okay. That's emphatically not true. And it's also true that whatever else we do, we're going to need the right gas tax, which is, uh, there's lots of debate about this, probably in the order of $2 a gallon. Now, what is this tax for? I'm against thinking that this is a tax you pay to buy transit with. I think this is a tax you pay to pay for the resources you consume by driving your car. The roads you drive on, we already have that. The gas tax pays for building roads. The congestion you cause to other drivers, the air pollution you cause, and the health effects, and some social consequences, which we might, have, might not have time to get into, but um, uh, we might come back to. Then there's a totally separate question about what we're going to invest in things like transit. And here, we, here our behavior is deeply crazy. Two couples, uh, two couples in Berkeley can drive to San Francisco for a show and park and drive home for less than they would pay on the BART. And if they took the BART, they would be going at a time when there are empty seats, and therefore their trip on the BART would consume practically no economic resources. This is crazy. Uh, this is, and it's sending all the wrong signals to citizens about how they should be behaving. Are you so, including the, the cost of parking in that? Yes. I'm, I'm not only including the cost of parking, I'm including the hidden cost of owning your car, like a little bit of insurance and mm-hmm. a little bit of wear and tear in the car. So you think that public transportation ought to be cheaper, cars ought to be more expensive, and the way to achieve that is yeah, gasoline taxes? A gasoline tax is one, right. And, and see, that now we come to the other point, which is that it's not enough. Let's imagine that we have a citizen motivated to the skies to not use her car. Mm-hmm. Say, I've, I got the lesson, I got the gas tax, it's, you know, I'm going to get myself around in another way. Well, what are my choices? I can walk. Can I do that? Uh, you can buy a pair of shoes, no problem. But I can't buy a street that's attractive to walk on. And one of the important issues of land use planning that uh, city planners think about and the rest of us don't enough is that some streets are nice to walk on, like every single street in the city of Paris. You can go out of your hotel, start walking, and around every corner, um, inside, certainly inside the, uh, the legal city limits, you will find something really cool to look at and fun to see. Some streets are not nice to walk on, like most of the residential streets of San Francisco, which is basically passing a string of garage doors. Um, I can't, I'm motivated to ride my bicycle. I can buy a bicycle. That's within my capacity, but I can't buy a bike path. I'm motivated to ride the tram, but as a private citizen, I can't buy a tram. All of these are market failures that have to be provided by government if we get the right amount. So it's, it's not, well, should we have a gas tax or should we have a big transit investment program? We've got to keep several balls in the air here, and that's very challenging for governments. Michael O'Hare is professor of the Goldman School at UC Berkeley. We're discussing international transportation at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton, founder of Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. Uh, An alternative to some of the things we've just been mentioning is I increasingly hear about a tax for miles driven. Uh, And I think Oregon or or Portland recently did something to that. I'm wondering what you think about rather than taxing. uh, Now, that would do uh, tax uh, a Prius and a Hummer at the same rate, uh, which some people would would view as inequitable, Lee Shipper? Well, first of all, I think you should – I believe some of what we pay as fixed costs, like a standard amount of insurance a year, is proportional to how far we drive. That should be variable. In principle – you won't pay any more, but because it now costs you more to drive an extra mile, you'll drive less. But the second point, given the scarcity of space uh, and, and sidewalk, which makes cities walkable, a Hummer would pay more than a Prius because it has a bigger footprint. And this is particularly important in, in a... Footprint in a, meaning visual, actual, physical yeah, size. It actually just takes up more area. Okay. And one of the things that would also encourage uh, us to downsize our cars so that, so that little, little Honda Fits don't get hit by... By, by Hummers and knocked over the bay is if you have a footprint tax uh, that's, that also controls how much you pay for parking, we gradually downsize the fleet. There's simply physically more room to fit more things in. I, worked, I lived in Stockholm for two years, worked very closely with the team that first ran the congestion pricing experiment, and the, the key point there was they wanted to make a better Stockholm, and fixing traffic was 
part of that. And by the way, it turns out they save 50,000 tons of CO2 as well. But the primary focus was Stockholm was a bit chaotic on the streets. I lived six and a half years in Paris cycling around. People called me a madman because I wore a helmet, and the Parisians <laughs> didn't. But there, the, the, the new mayor who came in in 2001 began to realize we've got to do something about this. And while he hasn't quite embraced congestion pricing, which would be easy in Paris because, again, the entrances are very well marked, like Stockholm. They're all bridges over the, over the ring road. Uh, you really have a chance because Paris and Stockholm and London believe having a good city is, is, creates real value. It's not just that our lives are better, but it actually creates value, but it's going to cost. And, and charging for how much you use the previously free roads, how much you pay for parking, how much you emit, is, is in some sense the compromise solution, the economist solution, for how you both get to pay for what it costs to do this, but also so you're not really running down your system because it's being offered to you too cheaply. Lee Shipper is a project scientist in global metropolitan studies at UC Berkeley. Courtney Hosenga from Shanghai. We've been talking a lot about cars. If we talk about international situation, uh, we don't talk about cars. In Vietnam, uh, 90% of the vehicles on the road are motorcycles. Uh, If we look in China... China produced uh, about 5 million cars last year. At the same time, China produced 16 million electric motorbikes in the same year. So it's clear that the discussion is to some extent uh, transferable, what, what is being discussed here. But at the same time, it also means that countries in Asia, countries in Latin America and Africa will have to find their own, their own solutions, their own policies. And that, I think, is quite a big challenge. Because if we look at the people around the table here who represent institutions with a well-established capacity to think about these problems, in the developing countries, these institutions are much more scarce. And I think that until and unless we can create an intellectual creative capacity in the developing countries to start to address this and to create this policy dialogue, to create the Commonwealth Clubs for Asia and Latin America, it is going to be very tough. We've also been talking a lot about policy and, and not so much about technology. Is there a possibility that some of these developing countries will move away from the internal combustion engine to uh, electric cars, or I've heard about compressed air uh, uh, cars in India? You know, is, is there a possibility they've leapfrogged the United States in other areas of technology? Lee Shipper? The, the compressed air car is a fraud, and three of my students and ex-students are working on that. However... The, uh, the notion of creating... Wait, does that mean the flywheel won't work either? Flywheel. I'm waiting compressed for the flywheel a, to come back. Compre- compressed air is actually a very good way of storing things. We have things called jackhammers that use it. The numbers that we've been able to figure out for the compressed air car suggest batteries are much, a much better way to do it. However, the key point is that we're, we're potentially choosing something that's somewhere between a complete gasoline car and a complete electric car called a hybrid or a plug-in hybrid. Uh, again... Let's just say that I was approached by a major Asian government saying, should we become a place to both use elect- make electric cars available, set up the charging infrastructure, and manufacture them? And I think the, the point is that if you believe that, if you understand how constrained Asian cities are for space, a small footprint car that doesn't need to go fast because the guy in front of you is not going fast, that doesn't need to be big because then you have no place to put it, and since you're living in an apartment and you, your whole city is filled with smart cards, you can charge it anywhere you want. That makes sense in an Asian model. And it may be that the small uh, electric could be a very, very clean uh, fossil fuel car if the nano got the, the Indian fossil fuel car got the right policy climate. A very, very little car would be a, a solution, a kind of something bigger than a two-wheeler, but not the U.S. or European-style car. The key point is that since... The Asian countries haven't in- invested in as many gasoline stations per capita as we in America have. They don't have to trash a huge infrastructure to build up a new one. And they don't and, have uh, as many manufacturing jobs tied to making automobiles either. So yeah, they so have it could less. Be electri- it could be very much a very electronics and 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 if you will, Bangalore, Silicon Valley driven driven innovation. But we do have one thing, which is we have to worry about what we do with all the batteries because the batteries are full of stuff that you don't want in your backyard. So we have to create a business model where there's, a, there's value in keeping the batteries alive, keeping the values out of trash heaps, keeping the values from being sent to these West African countries that will accept toxic waste. That's my main concern. 
Kate Bloomberg? I, I think we also have to think about what, what we're using to charge these, these vehicles, and that's something that's really important. If we're, if we're uh, talking about the California grid, which is relatively clean compared to um, the rest of the U.S. grid, I mean, even though it is, there is some movement between, but, but California has slightly cleaner electricity, it's a better place if you're and and so but if you're thinking about okay i can charge all these cars uh, um, I can add new renewables to charge cars, or I can add renew- new renewables and get rid of a coal-burning power plant and use that as my as my regular electricity. Wh- which would you do? Now, unfortunately, we don't make those rational choices in society, so it's not really that that kind of cost cost trade-off or or trade-off analysis, but I think that is something to consider, and a lot of the countries like China are are expanding their coal-burning capacity quite rapidly. I think China's adding a new coal-burning power plant one a week, Um, and so so when we're thinking about charging cars or bikes, that's something that, that we have to think about um, in terms of the, the larger picture. Um, again, I, I agree completely with, with, um, with Lee and, and uh, Corny that, that it makes a lot more sense to use a battery to, to move around a, a very small vehicle than to move around a Hummer. And so kind of like who's, you know, who, where are we doing this? And, and in a lot of ways, the developing world could leapfrog beyond uh, the developed world because they have different kinds of, of needs, even things like like the finish on the car. You might be able to use a plastic body in the developing world because you don't have to get the shiny car finish that you do. So you can't, here you have to use a metal body so you can paint it because otherwise the customers would never buy it. So you could have a lighter vehicle, you could have a a vehicle that's more suited to an electric vehicle in the developing world for a lot of different reasons. Um, but, But I do think that we need to think about Trade-offs and and what what are we losing out? And with the nano, are we just adding more cars to the road? The the small tiny little cars in India are we just adding more cars to the road and taking off bikes and and pedestrian traffic? Or are we are we saying okay, there's going to be less growth in the in the large car market? And I don't think that we know that yet. Um, or or I think that we could probably guess that it's going to be more the latter uh, or more the more the the former, more more less uh, less bicycles, less motorbikes, um, and less less kinds of efficient transportation. Um, but at the same time, we need to add this infrastructure. I mean, walking in Delhi is a is generally a horrible experience, <laughs> but a lot of people do it. Um, and and if we could make it less horrible, it would it would be better. So. Kate Bloomberg is research director at the International Council for Clean Transportation. Corny, did you have? Yeah, like I think you mentioned, uh, you asked the question, like, is there leapfrogging? And like I said, 16 million uh, electric motorbikes uh, per year. I would call that. Uh, I would call that leapfrogging. Mm-hmm. Also, Warren Buffett, who used to be considered a wise investor, a little bit less these days, but but he took a 10% interest uh, in a battery factory uh, in, uh, in China. BYD. B- BYD. Yeah. And BYD came with an announcement that they now have a car which can go 250 miles with a three-hour charging. And if that's the case, that would really change the, change the picture. So I think it will be very interesting to see in the next years, like the, the Detroit Motor Show was talking a lot about electrification. But at the same time, if I look and if I walk around in China, I see electric uh, little police cars. I see electric uh, three-wheel public transport facilities. I see electric cars for street sweepers, etc. So from that point of view, the mindset of the people is entirely open. Mm -hmm. And and we see see these things happening. So the idea to, to say, oh, electricity is unreliable and I need to have an internal combustion car Mm -hmm. because otherwise I don't have a real car. I think for a lot of people who have never owned a car, Mm -hmm. I think that that point is much less true. So I think that, coming back to what Lee was saying, is that I do think that the the, the context might be more favorable. Mm -hmm. Coming back to what uh, what Kate said about the charging, a lot of the charging is happening Mm -hmm. Mm off-peak. 
So at the same time, uh, governments are looking at, uh, at cleaning up the, the, the coal industry and looking at coal, cleaning up the, the, the coal-fired power plants. So I do think that it is an interesting proposition. And I would not be surprised. Remember, the Chinese went from, in 10 years from 48,000 motorbikes to 16 million motorbikes. So if they apply the same ingenuity, the same, the same drive to, to electric vehicles, some very surprising things might be happening in the next 10 years. Well, let's look at that. We have about five minutes left, and we want to look at, say, the next 10 years, where we think these Asian uh, developing metropolises will be. Will they look more like uh, Los Angeles, or will they be more like New York, perhaps, with, uh, with greater uh, population density, which they already have, and, and greater concentration of, of public transit? Michael Hare, what do you think? Uh, well, if they look like Los Angeles, we're lost. Uh... The uh, uh, Packle and Sokolow at Princeton wrote a famous paper in 2000 and said, look, here's 15 things we have to do seven of. Uh, This is the famous wedges? Yeah, right. We need seven wedges out of the following 15. And these 15 are things like double nuclear power and have the – another one is to have the carbon emission – this is just for climate – have the carbon emission of the transportation sector. Uh, the California Low Carbon Fuel Standard, which is what I'm spending most of my time working on, will get us 10 percent. That's a fifth of a wedge. So we, we really need to do everything we can. Um, I, would be, I would be very sad if, the, if our new recognition of climate pressure uh, led us to save the car by, turning, by putting ourselves into electric cars because there's lots of things wrong with cars that don't have to do with climate and have to do with the quality of life. Mm-hmm. Um, that if you, one of the things you observe if you, go to, if you go to pedestrian cities like New York is that people aren't fat because they walk to, and then they take the subway, but they walk a lot. And if you go to cities where people go around in cars, there's a big problem in obesity and overweight and health. Um, but the most important thing, I guess the most important thing that I think we need to think about is that if you wear a car, any contact with any other human being is to be avoided. The slightest <laughs> brushing against somebody else wearing a car and you're on the side of the road exchanging papers and and hard feelings. If you walk, you bump into people and you say, excuse me, and you go in your way. Now, what does this mean? We're hardwired to be afraid of people not like ourselves. If 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 we leave ourselves in a society where we live in a socially homogeneous, socially and racially homogeneous suburb, get in a car, seal ourselves into a car, and drive ourselves to a workplace that's full of people like us and shop in a mall that's targeted to people like us, um, we're, we're not moving in, a, in, a, in the direction of a stable, integrated, complex society where you run up against lots of different people, and that's what I want for my children. So you think we shouldn't just... And it's just cars. So you want to get rid of all or most cars, well, move away from the car want... rather than changing the technology inside Yeah, them. I mean, I, I, I really hope that we don't, we don't use the, the global warming crisis as a clever way to save the car and solve the carbon problem but to seize the opportunity to change our whole way of living to a much more humane and ultimately satisfying one in which we don't spend our time going around in private cars, even if they're clean and electric. Mm-hmm. Michael uh, O'Hare is a professor at the Goldman School of Public Policy at UC Berkeley. Uh, Kate Bloomberg, you work for an organization that is aimed, I think, in part at cleaning up cars. Do you th- agree with Michael that we ought to uh, have fewer cars rather than uh, cleaner cars as a goal? I think we need both. I, I completely agree with Michael O'Hare that, that we need that we definitely need to, to have uh, that we should not be building our cities for cars, that we should not be building our societies for cars, um, that we need better public transportation, that we need better um, uh, uh, transportation for pedestrians, bicyclists. I don't own a car. I ride my bike. I take public transportation. And um, and I h- hate driving in a car. <laughs> but, but I think that cars need to be cleaner at the same time for all of those other reasons. And buses need to be cleaner and, and transportation in general. So I think you can't do just one. I mean, what, all of the things that we've talked about, taxes, it's not just a fuel tax that's going to solve it. It's going to be a variety of taxes and regulations. There's, there's not just one answer. There's a whole mess of answers. And to get to a 50% reduction in carbon emissions from transportation um, globally, we can't just clean up the cars. There's no way that it would be sustainable. We can't fit all those cars, and we can't, and we can't have the carbon emissions. So we need to do both. We need land use tra- uh, planning. We need uh, better public transportation infrastructure. We need better policies in general. So we, it's really a hard task. We need to do a lot of things. 
Lee Shipper, if we have to do everything, how do we prioritize what we need to do? We're here <laughs> I think at the it's, end. Very, it's very difficult, to, and I'll be real blunt. Uh, the American business sector is showing some really good signs, but when you look at the leaders in the chambers of commerce, they're all against doing anything. Everything is always short-term. Look at the testimony. Look at the people who appear on Capitol Hill and try to stop everything. Uh, I've asked some of the leading climate scientists whether they pay attention to the, to the right-wing people who just are climate deniers, and they say those people are important. And I think even in the case of transportation, when, when uh, some money was available to test whether it would make sense to charge more to cross the bridge, the Bay Bridge, during peak hours, uh, a legislator now in state government, I won't name him, uh, but he had a lockup on the deal, said, I will not balkanize the Bay Area. And he basically trashed what would have been a very, very valuable way, a cheaper way of making more room available on the bridge. So the forces against market forces in the United States economy, mostly from the right, but also from the left, everybody plays the violins about that poor person, means that there really isn't a lot of space in the U.S. for President Obama to, 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 to maneuver, whether it's climate or transport or housing or investment. All of the U.S. economy is tottering because we didn't want to face the real price of the, the, what we took from the economy. We subsidized it, and now nobody wants to, to change it. Uh, and, and I think that, that that's kind of at the top, and it's, it's a problem that energy, climate, transport, housing, all of the sectors, uh, food, all the sectors face, and it's going to require a major cultural change, and people are not going to feel like they're winners because this time they're going to have to pay in first and, and collect later, and that's not something outside of wartime that the U.S. culture has been used to. And frankly, the, the wars that we're in now, we were not told by the former administration. We were not asked to pay for. So saying pay for a little less carbon, pay for a little better access in the streets is going to be very difficult politically. And I wish President Obama, Governor Schwarzenegger, and all the others all the success. But I'm, I'm worried that we won't be able to get even to the next 10 years. And yet what we've described in this discussion is really a 50-year change. Mm-hmm. Well, interesting to see if uh, President Obama makes that transition and actually asks people to, if not sacrifice, to, to, to do something. Uh, this concludes our discussion today on international transportation at the Commonwealth Club of California. Our guests have been Kate Bloomberg, Research Director at the International Council for Clean Transportation, Crony Huzenga, who is Vice Chair of the Clean Air Initiative at Asia Center in Shanghai, Michael O'Hare is a professor of the, the Goldman School of Public Policy at UC Berkeley, and Lee Shipper is a project scientist in global metropolitan studies at UC Berkeley. I'm Greg Dalton, founder of Climate One at the Commonwealth Club, and now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California is adjourned. <laughs>